It's okay. And we'll be reading from Galatians. It's on page 5, Galatians 4, 21, 31. And the title of the sermon is, Who, who Son You For? Okay, I'll just read the text, not the title. Uh, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham has two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in an ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery and with her children. But But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud. You who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At the time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. After doing all that talking, let me introduce myself. I'm Howard Brown, the senior pastor here at Christ Central Church. And uh, we're going to continue in our sermon series in Galatians. And this uh, text is a little different than others. Okay. Um, Before we get into this text, let's set it up um, so we can understand what is being said. This is historical allegory. Which means Paul is using the pieces, uh, people and principles of a biblical historical account to make a point for present use for his argument. So we can't even pretend to get Paul's point if we don't know the story he's referring to. In short, this is what happened. This is the story of Hagar, Ishmael, Sarah, all the stuff he's referring to. God promised Abraham four or five thousand years ago, four to five thousand years ago, that he would be the father of a great nation called by God to be his called by God. Those people would be his people. But a problem. Abraham and his wife never could have children and they were now beyond childbearing age. So some years passed after the promise was made, and they got tired of waiting, and as per custom of the day, they decided to ask their slave servant woman, Hagar, to be a surrogate mother, to get a child. So the promised thing God had promised could get going. Hagar obeyed, as was the custom and did it. A child was born to her, a little boy named Ishmael. And then later on, God came through, as he had promised, and Sarah finally gave birth to a son, Isaac. Uh Uh-oh. Trouble, right? Right. Because God had determined and said the promise would come through a child born to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac. So that this other child, Ishmael, and his mom, that Ishmael was not the firstborn in God's design. 
And thus was not the child of promise, not in right relation with God to continue and bring forth these people of God. Well, later on, Sarah gets Abraham, her husband, to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Since the two being together, two families cause problems, obviously. That is the basic story. Let me level with you here. There is a lot of mess and unfairness and perceived injustices that seem to surface in this story. And trust me, if we were doing a sermon on that text about Hagar, Ishmael and Sarah and Abraham and everybody, that that we would go there. We would go in at all that stuff. But this is allegory. It doesn't call us or give us the ability to explore the story and all of its ins and outs. But it tells us what it wants to explore for its purposes. To guide us rightly with historical fact. To teach us something about the lesson in Galatians. So, what am I asking? I'm asking us to sort of overlook, hold off as much possible, the example stories, complicated mess about the slave descendants not included and all those sort of things. And that's some important stuff to talk about. But let's go with the Apostle Paul's lesson to people whom he loved and cared for in writing this letter, the word of God to them and to us. In the low country, Charleston, that is where I'm from, the Gullah tongued culture, we have a way of asking who's your mama? Or who's your daddy? Or what family you're from? I remember when I was younger, I entered a convenience store close to where my dad grew up, down in Rantoll, South Carolina, right outside of Charleston. And the lady behind the counter was looking at me like this, you know, trying to figure out something. And she said, who signed you for? I'm like, what? Who signed you for? I got it. I said, I'm Fonzo's son. Oh, okay. In other words, who's on your phone? Whose kid am I? Who's your people? What's your family name? But let me tell you, as many of you know, that a simple question can have a very complicated nature and complicated ramifications in the South. Right? I mean, I I can say, at least among African-Americans in my own family circles, this is a place and a topic of discussion and research that can cause despair and split in families. The family history. No, 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 not the one your mama told you, but the real story that cousin so-and-so really knows. You know, the story that comes out at the funeral. When you eat your macaroni and cheese and your potato salad, the real story. If you want to get aunts and uncles not talking to each other, cousins fighting and risks in family, just start digging deep. And in the South, deep means right below the surface. <laughs> right under the crust of the macaroni and cheese, right there. Paul in this text wants to start a family rift. And at the same time, end another one. You know, he is that smart generational relative who's going to set things straight by digging up and into some family history. And in doing so, draws a line between those in right relation and those who are not. And he uses this Jewish history to combat a group of Jews who thought it their right 
to run the family reunions, determining by how folks acted, whether their name would be put on that family T-shirt. You know, you're going to be the left branch of the tree and all that. You know how those things go. In other words, they wanted to run the church since they thought themselves to be the true people of God, calling others, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to fall into the family religious traditions, the, the Jewish laws and customs and circumcision. Because if they were going to be in true, true and right relation with God, they had to at least act like they were real family. Though in the spirit of Southern Gothic tragedy, Paul talks about two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, each of which had a children by one daddy, Abraham. And puts Hagar, the maid, the servant, the slave, and her son Ishmael, born by Abraham on one side, and Sarah, Abraham's wife, on the other. And in this Galatian lesson, these women, as the Bible tells us in our reading, represent two covenants, two different relationships with God. One represented by Hagar of those who were born and live according to Jewish customs and laws and are the naturally, naturally by human effort trying to be God's people. And the second covenant in Sarah, symbolically now that represent the Jerusalem from heaven, the spiritual Jerusalem, the the prophetic future vision we see here in Isaiah of God's church that this, that, that gives us who the real people of God, the spiritual, the eternal people of God, the church of the living God. That's who Sarah represents. And by including Mount Sinai and Hagar's description, remember Mount Sinai is where Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments. It's where the law began. He is saying that those who are following the law to be in right relation with God are really the slaves. You are in bondage to the law and are not born by the spirit of God unto freedom to be in right relationship with God. And understand what this must do to the law pushing Jews in the church on two levels. First, you're not really associated with Abraham. Remember digging in the family history? You, in Jacob, in Isaac, you're not really associated with their God, but you're really in following the law to be righteous, now spiritually children like your lifelong enemies. You are like Hagar's offspring, like them. You, you are still in Egypt. You are putting yourself in bondage. Now, the second level, guess what? You are not really, therefore, God's people. Uh Uh-oh. What the very least, not living like you are really God's people. You're not with Abraham and Sarah. You you are with the you are slaves with a slave mentality. Then, when you look to follow the rules and regulations of the law and your ability to do them well enough to be God's people, that's not familial freedom. That's slavery. And in verse 29, he's saying, you are even in persecuting the Gentiles, acting like your Ishmael's descendants. You know, persecuting them, making it hard on the Gentiles in the church, new people in the church with your rules and regulations unto holiness before God. And it hits hard like this. If we were to make a modern comparison, you Jews are acting like Hitler in your treatment of these Gentiles. How ironic. Those who seek to follow the law are the persecutors of God's real people. And what he's teaching and showing through this allegorical parallel is relationship with God, 
being found and declared in right relation with God, justified as his child, requires much more than the law. Being and doing good enough by some human effort, it is supernatural. Right relationship with God is humanly impossible beyond our earning, beyond our own ability to personally secure it. And so we are confronted and confirmed and even called by this question today based on your heart, based on how you think you have a relationship with God in low country style, who son you fall? The one unto slavery or the one unto freedom? And so with all that back history allegorical stuff, Paul actually makes short order with the point here. The promise, right relationship with God is by God's grace. It always was. Even back with Abraham and Sarah, it always was and it hasn't changed. Don't you understand right relationship with God is about God's grace for broken people? Now, the story of Abraham and Sarah is a story about what? Two broken people. Broken in that they don't work together. Literally, in not being able to have children, the fact that Sarah's reproductive organs hadn't yet worked confirmed that she and thus her and Abraham's relationship and family and hope for the future are affected by the damaging effects of sin on their lives. Not that they did something wrong and deserved it necessarily, but just living in a fallen world. Whether hereditary or something that showed up in Sarah's genes, these are people who in their brokenness are incapable of being people of promise on their own. It required the grace of God for their brokenness, in their brokenness, to bring them to a place where they could have been called people of promise. Beyond our biological fragilities, and breakdowns, our relationships, the way we treat each other, the way we treat and view ourselves either too high or too lowly, the way our friendships have become either under or over intimate, the way you and I spend our money and time, the, the ignorance and apathy to the poor and the unfortunate, the growing landfill signaling our overindulgent, our, our food problem of over or under eating, our addictions of, of not being able to say yes or no to certain things, the way our churches can even be and treat their people and view themselves. And in this passage, the way the Judaizers are treating others around them says that we too are impotent. Like Abraham and Sarah, according to what we really and obviously have produced to call ourselves or imagine that you or I could ever be children of promise. And that's because we come into this world into our relationships already damaged by sin, passed on in our nature. You and I are like glass with a crack already in it. And we are packaged and delivered into a world of breaking and over-demanding relationships, a, a world of mean biological realities. And in our sin-laden fragility, our packages are shaken and treated with neglect and apathy by others in, in this world. And though many of us might look good on the outside, the truth is we are all broken up on the inside. You know, that daddy relationship, it shook you. That failure thing, 
It smashed you. You know, that success thing walked all over you. That mental substance abuse illness threw you out the window. That marriage, that relationship, that church relationship even twisted you beyond your limits. There is no more discouraging thing than ordering something on eBay or something and it shows up. And you're like, the box is here, woohoo! And you're so excited, you can look at the label. That's what I ordered. And you shake it a little bit, and ching, 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 ching. Oh, Lord. You know it's broken. That's how we come before God. Broken up. Like broken Abraham and Sarah, having no promise to be right, to be well, to be secure, to be healed, to redeemed. We're trashable. And God, like with Abraham, makes a promise of right relationship, of acceptance, despite their brokenness. He's going to use them even though when he shakes the package, it's all messed up. It doesn't seem like it's going to be used because of his grace, his undeserved favor and goodness. Promise is to broken people. But I tell you. Broken humans are the most tenacious of all God's creation. And, and seeing their brokenness, Abraham and Sarah, seeing a perfect God who, who, who would not accept them. You know how we always, we always try, always try to fix ourselves or fix others. And we always make a mess of it. Always. Abraham and Sarah were told by God that they'd be used by him, Right. Even in their obvious glare and brokenness, there would be a people promised, a people right with God, bearing the blessings and goodness of God for generations that would change the world. And like them, I believe we think, God, that's too good to be true. But more than that, I think we are way too bad. We're, we're too sinful. We, we do wrong things. Wrong things meaning against what God has designed and asked us to do. And so we are way too bad to trust God's goodness. And so what, what do they do? They say it's been too long. Brilliant idea. Let's have Hagar have the child. You know, let's help God. And what happens? Ishmael and Hagar, a generation and group of people who are shut off from God's promise. Because we want to help God. There are two extra special toys in our home that are mine to promise and use. The HO train track, that's that electric train track, you know, the okay. And the HO racetrack. And for y'all old school folk, you know what that is. That's that electric track and you got the thing, and if you make it go too hard, it flies off the track. You remember growing up with them things. Got the little thing you put on there and elect, yeah. I bought it for the kids. Truly, they are mine. They cost too much. They mine to take out and have the boys enjoy with me. I have to tell them, though we have Thomas, the H.O. train, okay? It's hard for Harrison, I mean Clark, who has all these Thomas trains, the non-electric electric ones. And here I am coming in with these electric Thomases and I say, those are mine. You can't play with them without me. Even though they kind of have these child-centered articles, they're mine. And y'all play when I'm around. And so it goes like this. I promise that we will play. 
with the train track and they have to wait until I set it up and plug it up and make it work because unknown to them, they can't and they will make a mess of it. They, they just like any of us, man, I can do that. Now let's see, click, click, just put it together, put it in. Well, we set the racetrack up a couple weeks ago and I have a small house. So it sits right in the middle of the dining room, the one without a table and chairs, which doubles as the passageway to the kitchen. And once I set it up, I promised throughout the week when I come home, we'll play. Just wait for me, boys. Just wait. But what? Don't mess with the track. I mean, which has no power connections, just sitting there. Don't mess with the track, please. Don't play around it. Go somewhere else. And they're like, Daddy, we will because we like it so much. Please. And you guessed it. They couldn't do it. Every time I come home, I was always, oh, Daddy, you won't believe what happened. And, you know, <laughs> Daddy, it was Christopher. Sorry, Terrence. It was Christopher. He messed with it. And it happened when we, you know, and, and the, the, of course the track would get separated. And it happened when we tried to race the cars as promised. When it was time for the thing to go, we going around 75% away round, bloop, the, the, the car stopped. And we discovered a real thin, broken piece and place in the track where it wouldn't make the thing go away around. <laughs> It was so little as a sliver. Oh, oh, it would work. It is difficult. Let me tell you about them tracks for those of you who don't know. It's difficult once you move it or mess with it. It is a never-ending task to get everything right. You click this one, that one comes under. You click that one, that one comes under. Oh, my goodness, why did y'all touch it? I must be the fool here. You know, you get all these new, you get this circular activity of fixing all the gaps created by your new fix. And I could tell that that broken piece was a result of somebody trying to fix it. And they took it and got frustrated and jammed it in there real hard. And when you get, I'm just tired, and it breaks. God's law to the Jews was the no to touching the track. We're breaking it. We're playing near it. And like my shiny track, not bad in and of itself, the law, but all it did was cause people to get close where they shouldn't and play close to the edge and eventually break relationship with God. And then as expected in their breaking that they try to fix it themselves and make it worse. Cutting themselves off from the promise by trying to redeem themselves and God's relationship to make God's promises come quicker or more true to believe that they could not break it. And then when they did break it to believe that their ceremonies and circumcisions and doing all the right things perfectly would fix it. And all it did, according to Paul, was move them further away from being children of promise. And it enslaved them in a vicious, vicious cycle of, of, of lo- doing life and religion without God's grace, where they will always be without him and thus trap breaking his law and trap making it worse by trying to fix it. And ironics enslavement and they were taking the Gentiles to play and fix and make their lives better, lives of promise before God. And they were becoming children of slavery by it. The children of human produced and human attempted 
righteousness. Let me let you know that your spiritual lives, your religious lives, even your irreligious lives will never go well enough or as good as you think they should. God will not come home in time in the way you want him to, to do what we want. He will even seem like he is not keeping his promises to be a good God. I mean, it will seem like the world is against our even getting to the promise. And on top of that, we look at our lives and we are always messing up. We're always throwing the ball near the track, always going too close to the edge and in fear and distrust of God's goodness and anger, even at the ways others have come over and messed it up and seem to mess it up for us. You know, like I hear some of us believers talk about this evil world, which is true and how it stops us from being children and people of promise in your own. And then we look at your own pervasive sin patterns that break things. We forget the grace of the promise. The necessity of God's loving presence and power in it. And we try to fix it with rules and regulations and behavior changes. To get the promise without the one who is the promise keeper. We've made a mess of it. Trying to be religious enough. We've made it about having enough faith or enough quiet times. None of that stuff was wrong in and of itself. Oh, and being real enough or being emotionally enough or, or being biblically literate enough or protecting our children enough or being conservative enough or sort of enough or disciplined enough or churchy enough or mad enough, some of us with God or enough counseling stuff. And without God there, without his leading grace, we jam the tracks tight, too tight. And we actually ironically cut ourselves off from enjoying the freedom of being with God in our lives. Symbolically, Hagar and Ishmael, the Judaizers and Gentiles that followed their law, keeping righteous through the promise, were broken and cut off from it. A result of a life of jammed, put it together in your own strength sort of righteousness we have lives that don't go all the way around because in our sin we've thought we could be God's grace for us we've cut ourselves off from the promise so what do we do what is the answer let's look at the scripture here in verse 26 but the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother For it is written, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are, who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her own who has a husband. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. At the time the son born in the ordinary way persecuted son born by the power of the Spirit, it is the same now. There are two things I want to bring out here that we see in these verses. The the promise of God's grace hinges on two things. God's power in it and God's presence in it. 
I mean, it tells a barren woman, Sarah, to be happy. And then it says that the broken will be fixed and free to, then to receive the promise, to be right with God, and that this is the work of the Spirit of God, which you've already recognized comes on those and in those who have Jesus alone as Lord and Savior of their lives. I didn't tell you this, but, you know, when the track would sit there, I think I did, I would hide the plug so that they couldn't run it on their own. And it teaches us this, that without power... There is no fulfillment of the promise. What am I saying here? Right relationship with God. Being a child of God, being a person and child of promise is not something you can get for your own world on your own works. It takes supernatural power. God the Father given and choosing the, to give power. For that old woman Sarah to have that baby, it took power. For those of us who are trapped as broken people in a broken world who can't help but contribute to more of the broken mess, we need a miracle, a, a power that is not our own, a, a giving, a gift of God's grace to change you and your world. Let me say this, religious or not, it, life, righteousness, right relation with God and this, and this each, and this for each other, it doesn't and can't happen unless you and I are plugged in and are empowered to be exactly what we can't and have failed to be so apart from the grace of God. And this power to be free. Like our mission statement says, to, to participate in the promise, to, to enjoy God, to hear His truth, to form authentic relations between each other, to face the world with renewed dignity. It doesn't work. It doesn't go around the track without the last piece, the power that comes by the presence of God in Christ. A Christ that is central to your wholeness, to your redemption, to your freedom, not your powerless, ever-present attempts to be good enough. But God's powerful presence in his son, Jesus Christ. The key to the track working. The power being on to make the promise true. But the presence of the father to do it. The father comes in the presence and powerful working of his son, Jesus Jesus fixes the broken relationship and he turns life on. And for all that is broken in us and for the deserving turning of the Father away from our sinful attempts to make our world and ourselves better for the worse, he by his grace takes our sin on him. And he gives us, gives us a new connection, a new means through his word, through his sacraments, the fellowship of his church, grace that is unconditional, unearned relationship with God filled with the power and presence of God for broken people who can't make life work on their own. And there's this call to confess to a gracious father. We played too close. We tried to fix it. We tried to be good enough. We tried to be conservative enough. We tried to be wild enough. We did everything we could, Lord. And it was wrong because you promised your presence to repent. 
And in Jesus Christ, the one who fixes the broken pieces and empowers us to, by his grace to come to the Father, there is a seal, there is a renewed relationship of power and hope to the promise. This last part here in the text seems real mean. It reads this way. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman, her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but the free woman. It's supposed to sound hard. It's supposed to sound disciplinary. Paul is a pastor. He's saying, look, those of you trying to get to God according to your own works apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you're not in the church. That's what the church is, a group of people who are looking to God's works of grace for them and not their own. If you're doing that, you can just as well leave. It doesn't work. And so it's supposed to be hard. But it means so much more than just being outcast. It's saying that those who look to Christ for right relation with God by faith and not by working it themselves will not and never be cast out. Never lost. For those, they are forever in Christ, having been made so by the power and loving presence of God in Christ. That they are forever then, according to grace, Isaac and not Ishmael, Sarah's children and not Hagar. I don't care how many times you mess it up. And you continue to mess it up. There is grace in Christ for forgiveness. There is grace in Christ for confidence that calls those who've played a little too much with the track and disobedience and done wrong and tried to fix it themselves to declare and declare it again to the question, whose son, whose son you for? Over and against all your history of messing it up and being being messed with and being broken and being everything but able to call yourself a child of promise because of your sinfulness, that in Christ, because of Christ, whose son you for? I belong to the God of heaven and earth. Made a son and daughter of freedom eternally, forever, because of Jesus Christ. Only by the loving, gracious power and presence of God with his people. Whose son you for? Paul is saying, you can only answer that question yes if it's because of Christ alone. Faith alone. Grace alone. Whose son you for? The son that's for you. His son, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, thank you.
that in Christ we have a new Isaac, a son of freedom, not a frustration, a son of God's goodness to us, not a son of our grunging slavery before you. Call us to repent. Call those who couldn't possibly, because of their bad behavior, ever think they could be children of promise. Help us to see that promise in Christ. That as we turn to him with repentant hearts, you're good and you're gracious and you're powerful to make us what we couldn't possibly be on our own. Thank you, Lord. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.